Well, when I prepared the lesson that we're going to look at tonight from Psalm chapter 40, I was not uh, thinking that it might be as appropriate as it has turned out to be, just with the events of the day. But one of the things about the Psalms, and of course we have some papers there on the back pew and up here on the front, if, uh, if you'd like to grab one. One of the things about the Psalms is that they are expressions of all of the different range of emotions that we can feel as, as humans. Uh, many of them are meant to be instructive to us. They're meant to tell us how we might should react in certain situations. Psalm 51 is a great example of this. When David is confronted with his sin by the prophet Nathan, he responds in repentance. He, he repents in a way that doesn't mince words. He, he's very clear about his desire to return to the Lord. And so that's a, an instruction to us. It's a pattern that we should follow. Other psalms are, are more of the expressions of, of how deeply into despair a believer may even go. Uh, they're not necessarily meant to be patterns that we should always follow, but they're meant to be the source of comfort so that when we do feel incredible sorrow, when we do feel incredible even depression, we can know David felt this way too. We can know we're not the first to have walked through all kinds of trials and tribulations. And so we can find comfort knowing that believers, even a man who was called a man after God's own heart, has, has walked this road before we ever walked it. Psalm chapter 40, though, I believe, is a good pattern we should follow. It kind of falls into that first category. Um, if you read through the Psalms, maybe you do a Psalm a day or something like that, at least until you get to Psalm 119, which is, which is quite long. Um, but this is one of those where it shows us a, a response, Psalm chapter 40, of how we are able to look at our experience with God, relate it to David's experience with God here. How we're able to, to remind ourselves that in the midst of trial... It's a good pattern to speak what is true of God. To remind ourselves what is true of God, what His Word says. Because when the seas are rolling and things, and we're on the roller coaster and things are going up and down, the only sure rock is the unchanging God. He's the, the solid rock on which we can stand. And so in the midst of all kinds of need to be delivered from X, Y, or Z, we can say, I know that my God doesn't change. And then also, we can see in Psalm chapter 40 a pattern for how having a real relationship with God, knowing Him, not just knowing things about Him, knowing Him is that ballast. Knowing Him is that assurance that we can have. It is it's home base back, back to where we can run. And it works out practically. It has practical value in our lives. Um, so those are the things we're going to be talking about tonight. 
The first thing I want to point us to are the first three verses. We see just David's experience with God. Um, Many things in the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament, are descriptive, not prescriptive. They're descriptive. They, They describe something that happened, right? They don't necessarily prescribe what you ought to do. Well, this one, I believe, is both. It's descriptive. It tells about David's relationship with God. And it's prescriptive. It tells us perhaps something about God that we also can expect to experience of him. And so as we look to David's life, we could see maybe what God might do in our life. What we can trust in him and, and, and ask him to do in our life. So why don't we just read the first three verses as we look at David's experience of God. It says this. I waited patiently for the Lord. He's given a word of testimony. He's saying this is what happened in my life. This is what was my experience. This is how I found God to be faithful. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me. It's almost like he's describing a disposition of God's heart. What is the heart of God toward We sinners. Well, God inclines his heart toward his people when they cry to him. This is the the, the very character of God. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. This is the character of God to hear the cries of his people. Hopefully, this brings great comfort in the midst of sorrow. That your God not only inclines to you, but He hears you. He hears your prayers. This is an important reminder. Why? Because it's in the midst of... When we're in the, when we're in the, the midst of sorrow, in the midst of trial, in the throes of some great tribulation, that God feels the farthest from us. It's in the moments when God feels the farthest from us that we need to remind ourselves of the promises of God that He has said that He will be nearest to us when He feels the farthest from us. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction. This is a word picture. You see that, of course, David is not in a literal pit or a literal pit of of destruction. But his situation certainly was, at different times in his life, a pit of destruction. He says, the Lord drew me up out of that. He drew me up out of the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog. You can imagine a person walking through a swamp. And I remember when I was a kid at the headwaters of this little pond, my buddies and I, we had these rubber boots on. And I remember one time getting so mired, so stuck in the little marsh at the head of this where the spring was coming down and it was real flat in the, in the marsh that the only way that I got out of there was by leaving the boots in the mud and escaping with my bare feet. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth This is the result of God's salvation. This is the result of of how a believer responds when God comes through for you. 
He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. So the result of this is that David has a renewed confidence. Not only does he praise God, but he has a renewed confidence that if God did it for me, he can do it for others. He put a new song in my mouth, but he says not only that, many will see and fear, and they will put their trust in the Lord. Friends, this is my prayer for Trenton Baptist Church in 2021. That we as a church could see the character of God. We could be led to praise Him, and God in His kindness would allow us to see many people coming to know Him. That's my prayer every day. That God would so send an outpouring of His Holy Spirit that we could see others coming to know and fear God out of the ministry of this church. God, I pray it would happen. I pray it would happen this year. I hope that's your prayer as well. These realities, these realities highlight the need to have a living relationship with God. Doctrine is essential. And we must keep our doctrine pure because there's no relationship with God apart from it, right? There's no knowledge of God apart from knowledge of truth about Him. We have to know things about Him. What kind of God is He? Well, He's omniscient. He's all-knowing. He's omnipower. He's, he, he's omnipotent. He's, he's all-powerful. He's, he's all-wise and all-good. He's sovereign, of course. He sits in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. He is a God of wrath. He will not let sin go unpunished. But He's merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. He desires to turn the wrath of Himself away from us and to put it on His Son for everyone who would repent of their sins and believe. And that's the message that we share. Repent and believe the gospel so that the wrath of God could be turned off of you and put onto the Son who went to the cross and took it willingly. But doctrine, all these doctrines that I've just been sharing, they need to work themselves out in our lives so that they're not just dry, dusty head knowledge. They need to work themselves out so that we, through God's power, can do ministry. He can do ministry in our lives practically. So here's what David does. He speaks a few things that are true of God. He speaks a number of things here that are true of God. Look at verse 4. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust. Not only speaking about the trustworthiness of God, but he's speaking about what happens to people who also believe that. What what, what, What happens to the kind of man, the kind of woman who puts their trust in God? They're blessed. They're blessed. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. Friends, the Lord Jesus Christ is the only true source of our, of our hope and our comfort. May we, may we not look elsewhere. May we not look to the proud, as it says. May we not look to those who, who lie. May we keep our focus solely on the Lord Jesus Christ. God is the only one who is reliable and trustworthy. People who live out of this truth are blessed. That's what the Bible says. The Bible calls them blessed. I don't know if you're what's coming to your mind, but what came to my mind 
what came to apparently Charles Spurgeon's mind because I read him as I was preparing for this psalm, the treasury of David, Psalm chapter 1. If you remember how the entire book of Psalms opens, it opens this way. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all he does, he prospers. Blessed is the man. You hear the echoes of that in Psalm chapter 40. And then in Jeremiah 17, um, just before the passage that, of course, I harp on every now and then, that says a heart is desperately wicked. Who can trust it? says in, in, in Jeremiah 17. Just before that, Jeremiah 17 says this, Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. There are a number of ways to trust in man. Some people trust in a relationship. They hope that finding the right person will save them. Some people trust in man. They, they, they fear man. They have the fear of man controls them. They desire to, to get the approval of other people. They trust in man. We, maybe other people can give me what I need if I just get approval from them. Some people actually do trust in people. They trust in, in things to happen for their investments to go well and for their bank account to be big. And They trust in, in the security of a job. All kinds of ways we could trust in in other people, trust in man, put our, put our hope in flesh and strength. But the Bible says that the person who does this, verse 6, he's like a shrub in the desert. There's another good word picture. Shrub in the desert. And shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness and in an uninhabited salt land. Blessed is the man, though, who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is in the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water. You're hearing echoes of Psalm 1 now. Psalm chapter 1. He's like a, a tree planted by water. He's not like a shrub in the desert. He's like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots in the stream and does not fear when the heat comes, for its leaves remain green. And it is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. I uh, had a great-grandfather who, who always was making kind of plays on words. and um, He would find a lot of humor in funny signs and funny road names and funny towns and things like that. Um, in in the, the county where I grew up, there's a road called Booger Swamp Road. As you can imagine, that road sign was always getting stolen. You know, Everybody wanted to have a sign of Booger Swamp Road in their basement somewhere. Um, there was also a place out by the river, it's where it's at farmland, you know, both ways. You, you're going on the highway to the left, it was farmland. To the right, it was farmland because it was right up against the river. It's called Dinkins Bottom. My uh, great-grandfather had a lot of fun with that one. He's always asking how Dinkins Bottom was doing, you know. <laughs> well, Dinkins Bottom, it was, at, it was such a good farmland because of where it was located, right next to the river. Always had a good crop yield, of course, and everybody here knows that better than I do. But the reality is that's a word picture here. Grass is always green. The trees are always tall. 
The crops are always doing well, that part of the world, but they're not doing well out in the desert where there's no sustenance. But our God is seen here. He's pictured here. Our God is pictured here as our sustenance. The nearer we are to Him, the healthier lives we will lead. Verse 5 goes on, says this, You have multiplied, O, God, o Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. He's speaking more truth about God. This is the section where he's speaking what is true of God. You have multiplied your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. God's good deeds are intended to, number one, evoke our praise when we see the good things that God do the, the good things that God the good things that God does we are meant to praise him because of them and then secondly they're meant to be told far and wide because they tell of the kind of God that we serve we get to tell others not only what is in his scriptures but what he's done in our lives what we've seen him do what He's done in our church, what He's done in our own heart, in our own testimony. Joshua 4 talks about this. I have to go to Joshua here, read a little bit. <clears throat> I know that I've shared this recently, but it's worth sharing again. Joshua chapter 4. When all the nation had finished passing over the Jordan, of course on dry ground, the Lord said to Joshua, Take twelve men from the people, from each tribe a man and command, and command them, saying, Take twelve stones from out of here, from the midst of the Jordan, from the very place where the priest's feet stood firmly, and bring them over with you and lay them down in the place where you lodge tonight. And later in the chapter, And those twelve stones which they took out of the Jordan, remember, it's a picture, it's a reminder, where do we get these stones? We got them out of the Jordan. How were we able to get stones out of the middle of the Jordan River? Well, well, it was because God moved the waters. That's how we were able to get these stones from the bottom of the river. No, no other time will we ever be able to do that. But now, people said of Israel, When your children ask their fathers in times to come, What do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know. Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. And he says a couple verses later, not only for your children to know, but he says this, So that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. Friends, whenever God does a work, whether we read about it in the Scriptures or whether He does it in our lives, it's meant to, one, draw us to praise, just like it does here in Psalm 40 for David. He praises God, and then he says... He says, I will proclaim and tell of them, that they, yet they are more than can be told. Deuteronomy 7 does the same thing. God moves to save His people based on His love and not based on our goodness or deservings. Ezekiel 11, God will even judge His people in order to bring them through to see who He is. Remember, before they go into exile, God prophesied they would go into exile. Exodus 6-7, I'll read that one. Exodus 6, verse 7. 
I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Why is he going to act? Why is he going to save his people? Why is he going to bring them out from the Egyptians' slavery? So that you may know who I am. Exodus chapter 7 verse 5 says much the same thing, except it's not the people of God who are going to know, we're going to be reminded, but the nations, the others will know. Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts and the people of and the people, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Even, Israel, even Egypt will come to know the power and the might of Yahweh, the sovereign Lord of Israel. If you look back in Psalm 40, though, it goes on in verse 6. David understands what God really desires. What is God after? Is he, after, is he trying to build a people to himself who are going to go through the motions? Is he trying to build up a people for himself who are going to... Keep a bunch of lists of rules simply. Is that, is that the point of everything? It says this in verse 6. In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted. Wait a second. Didn't God command that they do the sacrifices and the offerings? What, what is he saying here? In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted. But you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. What could he be saying here? I think he's saying the same thing that we learn in Psalm 51. I'll read that now. It says this in verses 16 and 17. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You would not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. In other words, God is not looking for you to go through the motions of obedience simply. He's looking for you to go through the motions of obedience because you really do desire to know God. It's not that we're not supposed to do the commands. It's that we're supposed to do the commands with the right heart. A heart that loves God. That's the difference. It's not mere dry religion. It's true religion. Motivated by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thankfulness over what He's done. Life of worship, not a life of obligation. Verse 8, David understands that the way to be guarded from error is to be saturated in the Word. Look at verse 8. I delighted to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. So how? How does David know that he can do the will of God? By hiding the Word of God in his own heart. This is reminiscent of Psalm 119. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it. How? According to your word. And of course, Pastor Greg's going to say, the word of God does the work of God. How do we stay far from sin? By guarding our hearts according to the word. Verses 11 through 14, I'll read. Before I read them, I'll summarize them this way. David trusts in God's mercy alone as his only hope in the face of his own sins. Verses 11 through 14. As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. This is, this is the 
A man who really believes that God is not up there with a furrowed brow holding back His grace. No, God desires to pour His grace out on anyone who will call on the name of the Lord. Anyone who will call on Jesus' name can be saved. David believes this. You will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. And he says steadfast love. Whenever the Old Testament says steadfast love, that's the, the covenant love of God. The love of God that doesn't change. The Hesed love, right? That's the God's covenant love that He cannot break. If God could break it, He would cease to be God. That's how sure it is. Your steadfast love, your faithfulness will ever preserve me. For evils have encompassed me beyond number. So first of all, He's saying, hey, there's a bunch of bad stuff happening around me. Okay? But He doesn't stop there. If he stopped there, it would be like, I'm a victim of my circumstance. Evils have come up around me. What am I going to do? But then he goes on, my iniquities have overtaken me. David knows at the end of the day that even though he's got Saul chasing after him, trying to pin him to a wall with a spear, even though evils are coming all around him, David knows that his own worst enemy is himself, that he has a Genesis 3 heart, that he has a Jeremiah 17 heart, Even David knows that his biggest problems are not what other people are going to do to him. His biggest problems are his own sin. David could say in a a turn of phrase from American history, we have, or I don't don't know, I'm not a history buff. We have, yeah, I think it's a civil war. We have met the enemy and he is us what David seems to say here instead of he is ours my iniquities have overtaken me and I cannot see they are more than the hairs of my head my heart fails me be pleased O God to deliver me O Lord make haste to help me let those be put to shame and disappointed altogether who seek to snatch my life away let those be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. See? Lastly, uh, oh, I'm sorry. David trusts in God's mercy alone as his only hope in the face of his sins. Seems to be echoing Psalm 103. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide. Perhaps you have a conscience that always chides. Perhaps you had a father or a mother who always chides and And those voices just keep ringing in your head. You can't seem to get rid of the accusatory voices or the the voice of the enemy. He always chides. He's always trying to bring up the old sins. Always trying to accuse and to pin you to the wall just like Saul was trying to pin David to the wall. But God will not always chide. He won't always bring up the old stuff. He doesn't keep His anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His steadfast love. There's that, there's that word again. His hesed love, His covenant love, His steadfast love. The, the love that if He were to leave it aside, He would no longer be God. His steadfast love toward those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does He remove our transgressions from us. And then lastly... David knows God in a way that works practically. 
I think I meant to say verses 15 through 17 there instead of 13 through 17. So there's a typo. Let's read verses 15 through 17. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, Aha, aha. But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, Great is the Lord. In other words, here I have been. Here, here me, David, I have been saying what's true of you. Lord, spill your mercy over to others so that they too will see that you are the true God. So that they too will give you the praise that, you're, that you are due. So that they may say continually, Great is the Lord. As for me, I am poor and needy. But the Lord takes thought for me. See what he's saying there? He's not saying that I'm here because of my own goodness. He's saying I'm poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. Friends, tonight that's a comfort. should be a comfort for you. Not that you are good, not that you are wise, not that you are spiritual, but that the Lord takes thought for you. That he looks after you. Not based on your merit. Not based on your good works or good deeds. But based on his covenant love, his steadfast love. He loves you. He loves those who are his. As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Oh, do not delay, oh my God. David moves here to apply what he knows of God to his own situation. He prays to God knowing that God hears. Um, Earlier, see... Yep, he does that in verse 13. I misspoke. This really is verses 13 through 17. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O God, make haste to help me. But remember, he knows that God hears the prayers. He asks for protection from physical danger, knowing that God is powerful. Verses 14 and 15, he says, Let those who seek my life be turned back. So God, protect me from the physical danger. He says in Psalm 118, The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? In other words, God does offer protection from physical harm. Who knows how many of us could have been in the ditch today in a wreck were it not for God's hand saving us from some danger that we didn't even recognize. Some distracted driver who met us on the road, we weren't even aware that we were perhaps one bad decision away from the end of our days today. But the Lord's sustaining hand protected us. Next, David praises God, knowing that he is worthy of it. Verse 16, he gives God praise. He says, May all who seek you rejoice and be glad. May those who love your salvation also praise you. He says, May they say continually, Great is the Lord. And then lastly, he remembers that he himself is nothing, but God is everything. It's as if he's saying, God knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust, but still He looks after us. The way that David says it, he takes thought for me. Friends, I want to leave you with this comfort tonight. God takes thought for you. He sits in the heavens. He does all he pleases. And he remembers even you. So let's let's endeavor to be the people who can say with Paul... 2 Timothy 1.12, way down here at the bottom. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed. And I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me.
God takes thought for you. Let's commit in 2021 to know Him. Let's pray. God, thank you that on this day of all days, we can return to the one rock. We can ask to be rescued from the miry bog. We can ask to be rescued from the pit of destruction. We can ask this prayer on behalf of our nation. Lord, if you gave this nation what we deserved, you would judge us now just like you did your people Israel. But I believe that your kindness and your mercy can be applied to us still. Even though all of the wickedness that we have entertained with the slaughter of children, the wickedness we have entertained with trusting in wealth, trusting in material success, Lord, we've turned away from you. I pray that you would return us to yourself. God, would you save us? God, would you be with our nation? God, would you be with us? Help us to remember in the pit of our despair and in our darkest night, help us to remember that you take thought for us. And let this truth change us. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.